Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 28, verse 10. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles that we now have at the Pews, you can find that on page 21, if you'll stand and follow along with me. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During this Advent season, we've been considering theophanies in the Old Testament. A theophany is when God shows up uniquely and reveals himself in a very uh, personal and very physical, very tangible way to some Old Testament saint. And today, uh, as we've just read, we're considering the story of the vision that Jacob has in which God reveals himself to Jacob for the first time. You might keep in mind as we go through that based on the end of the passage, it's quite clear that Jacob doesn't really know God at this point. Uh, this is kind of an initial meeting between uh, Jacob and the Lord. And as it is such a meeting, I'd like to focus this morning particularly on God. I'd like to observe four attributes or characteristics of God that we see as a result of this passage. Number one, I want you to look at and see that uh, God is the God of exiles. Number two, that God is the God of heaven and earth. Number three, that God is the God of promise. And number four, that God is the God of mercy. So we'll go exiles, heaven and earth, promise, and mercy. So how do we see, first of all, that God is the God of exiles? Well, in order to understand that, we need to remind ourselves of Jacob's story. Jacob was born into a rather dysfunctional family. 
Isaac, his father, preferred his older brother Esau. He loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. But on the other hand, Rebekah, who was the mother, loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. Furthermore, she would manipulate the family to try to make sure that uh, Jacob was blessed in the story of the family. And so how that played out, you might remember if you know the story, Jacob initially steals the birthright from Esau rather than showing him kindness and compassion and offering him food when he was hungry. Uh, he said, I'll give you a, a bowl of stew only after you sell to me, you give up to me your birthright. So that Jacob would now be treated as the firstborn in terms of what he would inherit in the family. A little while after that, at Rebekah's bidding, Jacob disguises himself as Esau and goes into his blind father to receive the blessing that would have been saved for Esau, but because he's tricked, Isaac gives that blessing to Jacob. So now you've got Jacob stealing Esau's birthright, stealing his blessing from his father, so that Esau isn't really left with anything. You can imagine how Esau might feel. He cries out with rage, and he makes every intention to kill Jacob. Well, Rebecca is not going to let this happen on her watch. And so she basically smuggles Jacob out and sends him to far away to her brother Laban, Jacob's uncle, where he will try to seek refuge and try to get away from Esau before he is put to death. And this is where we find Jacob. He's just been threatened by Esau, and now he's on the run. He's in exile from his own family. He's in a place of fear. He doesn't know if Esau is going to come after him. He's in a place of loneliness. He doesn't know if he'll ever come back to his family. In fact, he'll never see his mother and his father again. He is alone in the wilderness, lying under the stars. He is in a place of exile. This reminds us that God is a God of the exiles. That exile plays an incredibly important role in the history of the Old Testament and indeed in our story. We'd only need to review a few different Old Testament figures to be reminded that Abram is sent into exile to follow his God. Jacob is here placed into exile, and then Joseph will be put into exile in Egypt. All of Jacob's descendants will be put into exile in Egypt. And we are people of exile. right? Strangers and aliens. Our citizenship is not on this earth, but it is in heaven. Just as an interesting aside, easily the most unremarkable patriarch is Isaac. And he is the only one who will not exist in some state of exile. He'll be born into wealth, and one can't help but wonder that being born into that wealth and growing up in that wealth and never knowing a place where he had to truly depend upon God might have contributed to the dysfunction in his family as he seems to be the patriarch who is least uh, minded towards God and his revelation and his promises. This place of exile is important because it demands dependence. Think of the refugees who are fleeing the northern coast of Africa and have sold everything they have to place their, their fate in a boat captain who will carry them across the Mediterranean to Europe. When you're in a place of exile, it's a place of desperation, and it's a place where you must place your trust, your dependence upon someone who can offer you rescue in the midst of that place. And this is why it's important in God's story. Right? Why is this the first time that God has revealed Himself to Jacob? presumably Jacob knows the stories. He knows the promises that have been given to Abraham. He knows the story of how his, 
His father was born to uh, a woman of incredibly old age in a, a miraculous fashion. But it's also clear here at the end of the passage that he doesn't know God and hasn't decided to call Him His God yet. He's not someone who's intimate uh, with God. And so it's in this place of exile that perhaps Jacob has the ears to hear for the first time. When everything has fallen apart, now is when God chooses to reveal Himself to Jacob. And perhaps that's very intentional. That now Jacob has the heart to perhaps pay attention to what the Lord might say. And of course, you can make application to the places in which your life, has your heart been more attuned to what God might say in the midst of exile and in the midst of frustration or when things are going really well? Surely the former rather than the latter when we need, realize that we need some sort of rescue. And so, the opposite is true as well. right? If exile or a, a remembering of our exilic status is important, then a, a, um, an awareness of how much comfort we are willing to engage in is important too. Because comfort will help us to forget that we're exiles. And the more comfort we experience the more deaf we become to God and His purposes in this world. And so what is it, perhaps, that makes you a bit too comfortable in this place? What is it that perhaps lulls you into a place of complacency? I was talking to someone recently who said, uh, articulated conviction, they felt that they had become, uh, that they were watching too much TV. That the television had become a place of comfort and solace. And each night they would escape into a world of drama to avoid the pain of life, to avoid dialoguing about that pain with God. It was simply a place to remove oneself from all the stress and anxiety that surrounded them. And so they they realized that this was a problem. They realized that this was something that was preventing them from remembering uh, an exilic status. And so they decided to give up the television for an extended period of time. That's a great decision. Right? A way in which to say, this is, this is providing me too much comfort. It's almost like a drug that dulls my senses. And I would rather be awake to hear the Lord. I would rather remember that I'm actually a stranger and alien in this land. In what ways, right? Is that a, even hearing out loud that you're supposed to be a stranger and an alien in this place, does that sound foreign to you? If it sounds foreign to us, it indicates to us how comfortable we have become in this place and how much repenting we need to do and perhaps things that we need to give up to be in a place that feels more like an exilic status than in a very comfortable place. The second thing I'd like you to see uh, in terms of God's characteristics is that God is God of heaven and earth. Now, it's not that long ago in Genesis that humanity tried to make their way to heaven to build a tower that would reach up to the heavens right? in their own strength and in their own power. God interrupted that project and as a result communicated quite clearly that humanity's hope is not in building up to the heavens. It's not in aspiring to reach the heavens. Humanity's only hope is if God reaches down to the earth and acts on behalf of humanity. And here we have a vision that develops that idea. right? A vision that uh, provides Jacob with a picture of Really, God's sovereignty. Now, this, this translation, I've always thought this translation is rather silly. 
And as a kid, it was really confusing to me because I would actually think of a ladder that goes from earth to heaven and think, how can so many angels be going up and down one ladder? And the reality is that ladder is not a very good translation. What's being described here is the kind of ramp you would build to send an army over a wall, right? Something that would carry a lot of soldiers over some rampart. So you've got this huge ramp. And Jacob sees the ramp and angels ascending and descending. What was this intended to communicate to Jacob? Well, at least two things. One, that heaven and earth are connected. That God is not removed in some far off heaven and only watching from afar, but He's actually, actually intimately connected with, with what's happening on the earth. Not only that, right, but two, His angels right, do His bidding. Constantly moving between heaven and earth, carrying out His will amongst all things uh, on the earth. And so Jacob should have had from this vision, and seems to really have initially, a real sense of God's power and His control and His sovereignty. Which is really just what Jacob needs to hear. This is why Jacob needs to hear this. If you go back a few chapters into the story of uh, Jacob's dysfunctional family, what you see is over and over a problem arising or tension arising and all of the characters in the story trying to resolve the conflict in and of their own efforts. Right? In the story of Isaac's family, what is profoundly absent is any notion of God. There's no notion of prayer. There's no notion of seeking His will. God doesn't interject at all. He just kind of allows this mess to unfold and to blow up. But Jacob is coming out of a family in which he has learned, oh, if we have a problem, we need to lie and manipulate and control other people in order to get what we want. And here God is saying, actually, if I am sovereign over all things, if everything on earth is happening because I permit it to, or I'm instructing it to, my angels are constantly doing my bidding, then the effort to manipulate and control is foolish. Jacob's being challenged with the notion that perhaps he can surrender control and trust in God who is in control. Now, I'll be the first to admit that trusting is difficult. Trusting God is hard for a number of reasons. One, he's not, he's not particularly safe. right? God will allow things to happen to you and to me that we don't want to happen and that we don't like for them to happen. And so to trust someone who permits that is difficult in and of itself. You can layer on top of that the challenge of trying to balance human responsibility and when you appropriately wait upon God. Right? As issues come up and different challenges affect your family, right? you're caught between, well, do I pray and wait? Or do I take responsibility? And I've seen some people pray and wait on the Lord and everyone around them thought, you better take some responsibility. And I've seen other people uh, Wait, uh, take a lot of responsibility and not effectively at all wait upon the Lord. Right? God wasn't much of a factor in the situation at all. And so navigating those waters is difficult. I don't pretend it's easy and I don't pretend to offer you any easy answer to, to, to navigating that, to deciding when it's best to trust, when it's best to exercise your responsibility. But it seems to me that if God is sovereignly administering all things on this earth, if His angels are constantly doing His bidding, then the very least we can say is that regarding anything of significance or importance, our posture, beginning and ending, should be prayer. 
if we truly believe that God is providential in all things, and that He is the one who has the power to change the courses of our life and the courses of the lives of those around us, then we would be very serious about prayer. Not too long ago, a, uh, I was talking with a couple of parents and they were very frustrated uh, with their child. And they were kind of at their wit's end. They just didn't know what to do with this child who was misbehaving and it was really a problem in a number of ways. And they were consulting counselors and they were consulting books and so on and so forth. And so at one point I asked, well, you know, are, you, are you praying about this? And the reply was, well, yeah, of course. You know, it was a very weak, half-hearted, oh, we know we're supposed to say yes to this. But in fact, we haven't been praying as we ought to for this matter. Which again, is that, is that opportunity for all of us in a place of angst and frustration and tension and fear to try to exert control, right? to try to manipulate a situation that we would see its outcome rather than actually appealing to the God who stands over, who, who has made heaven and earth, connects the two, and administers both. Where do you need to consider giving up control? Where do you need to surrender and pray more than you actually uh, try to, try to uh, power through everything by your own muscles? The third thing I'd like you to see is that God is a God of promise. You see this in verses 13 and 15 when uh, you see the, the ramp or ladder, right? and the angels ascending and descending, and when Jacob looks up at the top of the ramp, God Himself is there. And in verses 13 through 15, God reiterates the promises that He's given to Abraham to Jacob. Uh, so in 13, you get uh, God saying, uh, the land is yours. In verse 14, your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth, and through them uh, your offspring shall uh, bless all the families of the earth. In verse 15, you get God's presence promised and the promise to bring him back to the land that God will not leave him until he has done all that he has promised. Right? Pretty ridiculous and astounding group of promises for the Creator to make to the creature. You think on one hand, man, is Jacob really worth it? He is a conniving scoundrel who has not done his family any good service and is on the run right, for his sin. And here God is making all the promises of Abraham to him. You almost wonder, maybe, maybe you should go back and try again with Esau. Maybe there's more to work with there than there is with Jacob. But we realize that God's promises aren't dependent upon Jacob. God's promises are dependent upon God Himself and His character. And this is why we can be thankful because God achieves what He promises and we are not uh, held responsible to make those promises happen in our own strength or in our own way. Now realize how astounding this is for us sitting on the other side of Jesus. Paul has unequivocally said that you're children of Abraham. So as children of Abraham, all of the promises of Abraham are promises to you. We're also told that all of those promises to Abraham are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and that they have been accomplished. And so now all the promises that are existent in Christ are ours. Promises like that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises that He will bring everything to its proper conclusion. Promises that you will not have any need that goes unmet. Promises that you will be made new increasingly. 
sanctified and made holy over time, and your old self will be put to death. Those are pretty radical promises. Promises that uh, ensure the promise uh, an abundant life. And if those promises are to be trusted, if we are to really exhibit faith, then surely we must rethink our anxiety. We are an anxiety-prone culture. And some of you struggle immensely with anxiety. And I don't, I don't mean to belittle it, and I also don't mean to suggest that it's completely in your control. But at the same time, right, do we not need to challenge our own hearts to believe the promises in such a way right, that our anxiety is diminished? How do you think Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and did not eat and resisted the temptations of Satan? It was not because He was wavering on the promises of God. It was only He only could have been capable in that if He fully believed the promises of God and decided to bank completely on them. How does he go through the cross? Well, I'm not, I'm kind of 50 50 on whether God's going to actually pull this resurrection thing off. Right? It's not the way that you would have gone through the cross that one would have been equipped to do so, but only to trust completely on the promises of God. And as we trust completely on the promises of God, we are reminded that ultimately we are never left uh, to be devoured by this world. We are never left unattended. It's helpful to be reminded of Jesus' own words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? As we begin to doubt the promises of God, we invite ourselves to move away from Him and to achieve what we want in our own ways. Which God says, I will take care of you. It's only when we run away from me that you will actually experience the greater difficulty, the greater misery. And the last thing I want us to see this morning is that God is a God of mercy. Now to see that God is a God of mercy, you have to understand the difference between Jacob's two responses to this vision. The initial response comes in verses 16 and 17. When the dream has just ended, Jacob uh, then says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Not a bad take on what he's just seen. Right? When the dream ends, it's the middle of the night, and Jacob says, something terribly profound has just occurred. I have been in the presence of God, and I am in the place where he dwells. But apparently, right, Jacob goes back to sleep because some time passes before verse 18 in which it picks up, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head. And again, he didn't, never mind. He didn't really sleep on a stone. He just, in the ancient world, you might set stones around your head to protect yourself. 
It's another thing. You're growing up, and you're like, why would somebody put a, use a stone as a pillow? That's so odd, and it's not really what's happening. But uh, moving on. So he wakes up in the morning, right? And he, uh, he rethinks his situation. The same awe that was apparent just a little while ago has faded. And now he's, he's negotiating. He's conniving. He's back to the same figure he was, tricking his brother and making sure he got the better end of the deal. And you see this in verses 20 uh, through 22. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and if He will give me bread to eat, oh, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What is Jacob saying? Impressive vision, but I'd like to see some money on the table. So we're going to go forward, right? And if you provide for all my needs so that I don't have any wants, if you protect me on this journey, and if you make sure I make it back, and you solve this big problem with Esau so that I can return to my father's house, then, then you will be my God. What arrogance that the creature would speak such to the Creator. Can you imagine coming off the heels of a vision like that and deciding to say, okay, this is what needs to be on the table, and then I will treat you like God. It's pretty profound. And you might expect right, that God would just say, okay, I'm out. I can, I can raise up more children of Abraham. Right? That's not a problem for me. But he doesn't do it. There's nothing, he, just, he simply receives it in mercy and kindness and patience. And one of the really beautiful things that we get to see is next week we're considering the next theophany in Jacob's life, uh, which is one of probably the most written about theophany in the entire Old Testament. Uh, it's Jacob and the wrestler. And when that happens, Jacob's response to God will be very different. Even by going through this experience and the experiences that will happen unfold shortly, Jacob will be a changed person so that he will cling to God rather than negotiate with God. But here he's negotiating with him and God is patient. He's merciful. He does not punish him. And in fact, he's going to meet every request that Jacob makes. But the really funny part is that uh, they will be met over an extended period of time that will require much suffering. In other words, God will say, okay, Jacob, I can do that, but the way I'm going to do that is going to reforge you. So the next time that we meet face to face, it's going to be a very different encounter. And this is why God is a God of mercy. Because here we see heaven and earth coming together. As God has not forgotten nor left His creation, but is, is amazingly committed to its renewal. But this vision of heaven and earth meeting is just a vision. It's a vision that makes us long for heaven and earth to truly meet. Which of course comes to pass in the arrival of Jesus. And one of the neat things when Jesus comes on the scene early in the Gospel of John and He's collecting disciples unto Himself, He meets Nathaniel, And Nathaniel introduces himself to Jesus. And Jesus says, Yes, I saw you before you came sitting under the fig tree. Nathaniel's blown away. Since you saw me under the fig tree, you must be the Son of God. 
And in 151 of John's Gospel, uh, Jesus says to him, uh, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you do believe, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? He's quoting the story, this vision that happens in the life of Jacob. And he's saying it's right now here where heaven and earth have actually truly met. The angels descend and ascend upon the Son of Man because God Himself has taken up flesh. God proves Himself in the Incarnation to be the God of exiles because He Himself becomes an exile, leaving the glories of His home and His throne to enter into the earth. And God proves Himself to be the God of heaven and earth by taking on flesh and becoming man. And He proves Himself to be the God of promise and mercy by hanging on the cross. This is our Lord. This is whom we worship in the Incarnation. Let us pray. God, You are gracious and profound. And we would give You worship this morning. We ask that You would delight in it in ways that the Spirit must equip and it must exceed our capacity. We confess to You this morning that we are so like Jacob and would have a laundry list of requirements for You to be worthy of our worship. Would You please forgive us and remind us this morning that You are the Creator and we are the creature. And as such, would You help us to to obey, and not out of nothing, but to obey because You have proven Yourself to be a God of exiles. You've proven Yourself God of heaven and earth. You've proven Yourself a God of promise and a God of mercy. And in this alone, You are truly worthy of worship. We desperately need You in our exile and pray that You would help us to cling to You. We ask that You would meet us at this table, that You would nourish us, and that You would give us hope And you would lift our heads as we gaze to the horizon awaiting your return. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.